Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. My name is Jeff Hayward and I'm joined by my co-presenter, Susie Rumbold, Creative Director of Tasuta Interiors, and two very special guests here in the Clerkenwell studio of Parkside Architectural Tiles as we explore the secrets of successfully growing an interior design practice. Most interior designers begin in a whirl of creativity, energy and optimism. In an average working week they will act as designer, specifier, accountant, project manager, client liaison, IT support, office dog's body and tea lady. There is rarely time to spare for marketing the business or finding new clients. Workflows are impossible to manage and famine follows feast in a never-ending cycle that can be difficult to break. This is the curse of the small business. Yet some design businesses seem to grow quickly and effortlessly thrive, acquiring prestige and financial success along the way. Their founders serene and glamorous and much admired. So what is their secret? At what point did they make the jump to hyperspace and how did they orchestrate it? Today we're joined by two very special guests, successful designer Lindsay Rendell, British Institute of Interior Design President and founding partner of Rendell and & Wright, and Rose Murray, founder and creative force behind these white walls to find out how they did it. Welcome to the Interior Design Business. Welcome Lindsay and Rose, we're delighted to have you both with us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Would you mind just giving us a short introduction to you and your business? Lindsay. Helen and I set up Rendell and Wright in 2006, having previously worked together for a company in London called Cameron Broom. And we've both been there about six years um, before deciding we were going to go it alone. So yeah, that, we work in Suffolk. We have um, a team of four permanent people and we work all over the UK. Excellent. Rose? Um, so I set up these white walls in 2017. Um, I live in Brighton but the studio is in London and we um, work globally on a number of different projects with a core team of five um, and then with a series of freelance contractors who work with us. So yeah, we're quite small but fluid and growing. Lindsay, how did you get started in interior design? I have always been passionate about architecture, however the maths element of doing an architectural degree put me off, um, so I studied textile design and specialised in silk weaving at the Surrey Institute of Art and Design. Post degree I worked for Designers Guild um, for a short period of time before starting at Cameron Broom in South London. And, and what was the motivation for you to start your own, your own business? I had worked with the Cameron Broom for about six years. I'd met Helen, um, she was one of the project managers there. I had got married, um, I was in my late 20s, living in Suffolk and commuting to London and wanted to start my own family. And I, it was very apparent that I wasn't going to be able to commute to London, have a family and sort of give Cameron Broom the time that needed to do the job that I had. Um, so it sort of seemed a natural progression to set up and Helen was in the same scenario. And so I persuaded her and her husband to uproot and come to Suffolk as well. That's brilliant. And, and Rose, what about you? How did you, get, how did you get started? A bit rogue, really. I never studied interior design. I actually studied anthropology at university and thought that I would want to go into editorials. Um, and so I, my, my first sort of um, internship was at Vogue and I did a couple of weeks there and then stumbled into a, a wonderful job styling a cookery book for Nigella Lawson. 
And that kind of began a sort of 10-year sort of kind of exploration of art direction, styling, sonography, working on events, pop-ups with chefs, um, television set dressing, like all sorts of things. Um, and it was a sort of school of life, full immersion. And working, working with chefs when the pop-ups became permanent, I then started working with architects and the spaces just became more and more complex. So I was really learning from the ground up um, in that process. And yeah, then that just evolved into the world of hospitality design. And then at what point did you morph that into these white walls. So, I mean, I set up the studio in 2017. It was after doing a lot of um, conceptual design work um, for a number of clients in terms of creating their brands and spaces. And I was just waiting for the right client. And having um, worked with a number of clients previously, they came back to me and one said, I've got a space and I want you to work on it. And I thought, here we go, now's the time. How exciting did you find that process? I found it thrilling, yeah. I mean, I think I've always been a self-starter. I've, I've been a freelancer my whole life. I just was always working on my own, jumping into teams, doing everything, being that yes person, and learning, 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 soaking it all up. And I feel like that was just a, a decade-long preparation for applying it in a, in a very sort of targeted way according to what I wanted my vision to be. Um, so yeah, it was, it was thrilling. What about you, Lindsay? Was it exciting or was it slightly nerve-wracking as well? Both, <laughs> absolutely. I remember my mum saying to me when I said, oh, I'm setting up on my own with Helen. And she said, do you know what you're doing? And I said, well, we'll find out, won't we? <laughs> and I, I think anybody setting out on their own, there is a little bit of naivety um, you know, involved in it. And you don't quite realise the enormity of what you're, you're doing and nobody sets up in business being an expert in everything. You know, I wasn't an accountant, Helen wasn't an accountant. You know, we're not, we, I've never done project management before in the, in the way that it was required. Um, so you know your trade, you know your tools that you've got, and it was sort of a bit of a leap of faith. And certainly as within three months of having our business, both Helen and I were pregnant. Um, her, she had twins and I had Rory, and so, the first year was an absolute baptism of fire. We had a project in Scotland, one in Devon, one in London, and three babies. <laughs> we were in Suffolk. So it was a hugely steep learning curve. It was brilliant fun. It was very exciting, but utterly exhausting. And it has sort of set the path for where we are now. So I mean, obviously you started in a partnership. You had Helen right from the off. Yeah. But you were, you Rose, you were kind of by yourself. At what point did you take on a first team member and, and what was the catalyst for that? Yeah, I mean, I think it was, I think working alongside um, an architect and then working on a large project that had a number of specialist contractors, lighting designers, kitchen designers and all sorts, it meant that we each had a sort of specialist niche um, and yeah, I, I very much sort of took the reins and being the creative director within that and realised that I needed um, a design assistant quite fast. So that was the first person that I brought onto the team. Um, and it was the sort of, uh, for her probably a baptism of fire as well, because I was like, just follow me around and do with all the stuff I throw at you. Um, and I think that's a wonderful way to learn because I always um, learned that way. I was always thrown into a new project, a new job, a new role um, in the deep end. And I think it's sink or swim and those who are capable will, will swim, so yeah. And with you and Helen, Lindsay, do you find that you ha you were managing, cause you said she had a background, she had a, uh, with Cameron Broom, she was a project manager. So has, did she kind of naturally kind of fall more into that side of it while you did the designing or? Absolutely. Um, we had very, very clear roles at Cameron Broom. Um, she 
was a project manager. She did all of the you know, ordering, processing, booking of fitters, logistical side of things, and I did the design side. So we had that as a tried and tested system, you know, format, and we absolutely rolled that into our new business. Helen has no interest in being an interior designer at all. You know, she is a facts and figures organisation, you know, she is the most methodical person that I've probably ever met, so an absolutely perfect business partner to enable me to do the design um, and for her to be based in the office. And that's the way we have set up the business and it's continued to run. So we have very clearly defined roles. So when you took on your first team member, who was that and what did they do? We took Rachel on about three years ago. So we had worked together, just Helen and I, for about 11 years, 12 years before taking anybody on. and. Probably because we had to work from home, we had young families as I said, and between us over the course of eight years we had six children, so we had quite a lot on our plate. Some might say another business. <laughs> another business entirely. And so we had to manipulate our work and manage it around the children's schedules. We both wanted to be stay at home mums, we wanted to drop them off and pick them up, which meant more often, five you know, five days out of seven, I was working late into the evening once they were in bed and, and fitting everything around them. At the point our youngest children started school, which coincidentally was the same same year, which, you know, huge celebration and champagne breakfast, if I'm being honest, um, we then thought, right, we can now develop Rendell and Ride a little bit further. And we had been struggling. We had a lot of work. We needed to take people on. But you can hardly have someone coming and sitting in your, you know, in your office at home and making it feel like a professional business. So that was the sort of catalyst for us getting the studio and employing Rachel. What about you, Rose? I mean, that, that growth period where you're winning new business, how do you know what work to take on, when to say no? How do you then decide which staff to employ to, to deliver on those projects too? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's the nature of our work that's very bespoke. Um, I think I was very particular about the sort of projects that I wanted to take on and therefore the type of client. So I did have a number of conversations and didn't um, in instantly take on certain clients if they didn't feel right. So um, I think I've always approached it in that way and therefore you know you anticipate a project coming on and when you need to you expand and bring on the right people. So when, when we started taking on more architecturally driven projects from the ground up that's when I brought in you know designers who had more of an architectural background then you see that you need a big FF&E package that's going on you know working in a hotel or doing spa so then that comes into play. You have to yeah look ahead a little bit anticipate what you might need um, and bring on someone early on rather than waiting to the last minute. Yes because I suppose if you bring someone in at the last minute then you know you need them up and running then yeah. and actually yes you need to almost have a, a crystal ball to sort of say well I can see that this is on the horizon. A little bit yeah. And not necessarily employing everybody but having a network of people that you can call on to bring them in. Exactly that yeah definitely yeah and I think that's how I've, I've, I've always approached it quite fluidly and used freelancers when I need and then the freelancers stay with me um, and that's how we We've kind of grown um, rather than you know automatically sort of setting up a full um, you know sort of quite stiff um, foundation it's always been quite fluid and, and then and then organic um, and I think that works quite well. Same for you Lindsay? Absolutely um, we've we've been really privileged to have in Suffolk in the area that we are brilliant craftsmen brilliant trades and over the years we have built up 
a network of people that we work with regularly. So, you know, if we wanted 3D imaging done, I outsource that because it takes me much longer than it would take somebody else. Um, and we have a bookkeeper that comes in every month and we have, a, you know, an accountant that we work with and we have a CAD technician that we worked with historically. We now have somebody in-house as a technical designer. But when we were smaller and we couldn't afford to have somebody permanently, we outsourced all of the skills that we didn't do ourselves and that was a brilliant way of not having the responsibility of constantly having to you know pay people's wages but having really skilled people that we could pick and choose and use for the appropriate jobs. We've recently taken on um, Neil who joined the team and funnily enough we've worked with Neil for about five years and about well, probably about a year ago, I kept saying to Helen, we need somebody like Neil. We need somebody like Neil. And after about six months, she said, why don't you just ask Neil if he'd like to come and join the team? So he did. And yeah, it's funny how I think people tend to find you as well. Um, we didn't actually advertise for Rachel, um, one of our representatives from one of the fabric companies, um, kept sort of saying to us, oh, you know, you, you must be getting to the stage that you need to employ somebody. And once she visited us and said, we, we really are looking for somebody or we think we need somebody. And she said, well, I think I know the right person for you. So it was an introduction rather than us advertising for a job position. And she had obviously worked with Rachel for years and worked with us for, for years. And she knew Rachel wasn't happy where she was. She knew we were looking for somewhere, somebody and sort of put, two and put the two of us together. And I think it's, it's been a very sort of an organic process of how we've sort of created our team. And it does feel like we absolutely support each other with our, with our skill sets. And it's an enjoyable place to be. Rose, would you say that your team is now at its optimal size? I mean, you're obviously you pick people up and put them down according to the project needs, but it sounds like you're picking up more than you're putting down. Yes, yes, definitely at the moment. I think because we've um, we take on we've taken on quite a few long longer term projects, so as opposed to sort of six months, sort of two years, two and a half years. So. Um, from, from that perspective, you can see, actually, I need to build that up. And, and also, there's, there is a process that you go through, so you know ahead of time there's going to be a big technical load that uh, needs to be fulfilled. So then you put people in place like that. So it's sort of, yeah, you are kind of playing the board game as you go along. But um, no, I think as we expand, the team will continue to expand. But I think equally, because... It, you know, it is my studio and I care very much about it. I don't want it to grow to the point where I feel extracted um, and, and not part of that process. And I think that is, that's just a choice, really. Would you agree? Yeah, we're, we're at the stage where we're thinking we need to take on somebody else to support Helen, but it's, an ever, it's like a snowball beginning to roll, isn't it? So if we employ somebody to help Helen in the sort of the management side of things, she, we then need to create more work to keep the two of them in place, which then means we need another designer or another technician, which then means we need another person. And it continues to grow. And uh, Helen and I have recently actually had the conversation that what are we trying to achieve? Do we want it to grow any further? Or actually keeping it as a slightly smaller team, having absolute sort of control over everything that happens, possibly gives a better result to our clients and keeps it feeling personal and allows you I suppose to pick and choose the plum projects which exactly. is, is you know people want to be thinking that they can do light work yeah currently we have 23 projects running and they range from a boutique hotel a second phase that we we did a hotel in Suffolk a few years ago and they're now doing a second phase including a spa um, we've got two listed manor house projects that are for renovations we work with a local design company um, 
pro a property developer doing all of their show homes for them and we do about eight or nine a year. So our range of projects, some are quick projects that turn over quite fast and Rachel tends to manage those. And then the sort of historical restoration work I tend to still do myself and repeat you know old clients that want to work with, directly with me. But I've, I would not get to, want to get to the stage where I couldn't personally be involved in everything that's going on. I think it becomes a totally different organisation um, and that's not really what we're wanting to achieve ourselves. Have you got a clear idea of where These White Walls is heading? It's funny, I mean, I've always, it's like the way I did my career. I started styling a plate and then it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and yeah, I feel, I feel very much like every, every new project offers a new adventure. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm increasingly interested in, uh, I don't know, maybe a temporary settlement or um, something that's more of a, a, a kind of refuge, you know, I think something which is, has a bit of an architectural or environmental challenge. Um, I think all of these things, I like pushing the boundaries, so um, that's kind of where I'm looking at next. Um, but I think you have to... Remain open to what comes and surprise yourself. But yeah, anything that tests the boundaries, um, I'm interested to explore. I was interested in what you said about controlling whether you grow or not, because sometimes it, it will be determined by the projects that you take as to whether you grow. If it's a huge project and you need to throw a lot of resource at it, then you're going to grow by, by default of the project. True, but I, as I said earlier, I think a lot of skill sets you can outsource. You don't have to have everybody in-house. I mean, we work in Suffolk reg quite regularly with a few architectural practices and they tend to recommend their clients come to us at the beginning of the project. So all of our sort of architectural needs are met by the architects that have recommended us for the projects. Um, and again, we've got a few structural engineers that we work with on a regular basis. So that sort of side of the business, although we could bring that in-house, I don't feel like we need to. We work with them, all, all of these companies, we work with them pretty much cons consistently and have done for years and years. So we've got a really good relationship. We understand each other's expectations. They know what I'm looking for. I know what they're looking for. So one of, one of the architects, in fact, one of the building contractors we're working with, the architect, the builder and I have worked seamlessly for six years without a break together from one project to the next project to the next project. And I think it's, it's great. So we've almost sort of created a bigger, a bigger company between our smaller companies. So each of us bring a facet that's required to create these fantastic projects, um, but are all run as independent people. And that's, that's been a really lovely way to work. So I think I'm hearing from both of you that, well, maybe I'm wrong. Did, did, did either of you have a, a business plan? Not at all. And I thank God that Zoom didn't exist when we first started because when we did the project in Scotland, I can remember thinking the only way to keep Rory quiet whilst I had a meeting with the architects over the phone was to feed him. So I would be, you know, hand in one, you know, phone in one hand, baby, baby the on the boob in the other. <laughs> and that was how we started. So no, there was absolutely no business plan. It's been um, at the beginning anyway. And as things became more serious and as it, uh, it was became more and more apparent that what we had started was going to be successful and it was going to grow and we needed to, you know, become professionals at what we were doing, not just two mums working from home. Even though we're planning for the next five years, it looks like we are going to have to employ somebody to help Helen. We are probably going to have to increase our studio size. Um, and I think there are limits as to where we want the, the, you know, the business to go, but we do have a plan and a direction these days. And you? 
Uh, I definitely didn't have a business plan, similarly. Um, I think I just had a big vision and a lot of enthusiasm and a real drive <laughs> to create. So I think when the opportunity arose, I was like, let's see where this takes us. Um, but yeah, uh, equally, I think now, a couple of years in, you begin to see where you want to go, how you need to develop, and yeah, the studio will grow bigger, there'll be more opportunities for more FF&E, we're doing a lot of bespoke um, product design, you know, so that's a really exciting avenue that I want to build on. And that must be really good as well for the, the staff that you do employ, because you want to keep them engaged, happy, satisfied, because unless they stick with you, it's difficult to then grow on top of those people too, isn't it? Absolutely, and, and, I, and I also think what I'm learning more is about you know, how it's uh, important to open up um, opportunities for young members of the team to come in and be part of a team that they can also be mentored by. I think I was doing a lot of mentoring of the team, which was um, taking up a lot of time. And actually, I think as you begin to grow, you recognise that just by osmosis, the team can teach each other quite a lot. So that's something which, like creating that environment, I think is quite important. I think also for the team, um, you know, planning our timelines. We're now looking at our diary and our planning of our time for next summer to Christmas because of the projects we've got on and the time frames that they're going to be in when each of us are outfitting. Um, it's really sort of quite imperative that you are looking two years ahead and somebody comes and says, can you do this project? Well, we can, but we actually can't start it till spring and, and then you're sort of, if it's a large project, which most of ours are, you're then looking 18 months ahead for fitting. So already we're looking at fitting sort of, you know, 2024 for some of, so you're planning ahead and with that you have to take into account staffing issues and things as well. That's what I really meant when I picked up on that feast and famine point in the introduction mm. that I think a lot of smaller companies really struggle because they're so busy doing it and they'll take on another project and you're only as good as your last project. So if you can't really service those clients and give them the level of service that they are paying for and deserve, then you know, you're screwed basically. Absolutely. And I, I think that's really important. So sort of planning, you know, planning of human resources to be able to deliver yeah. is something that, that studios need to be more aware of, I think. And also looking after your, your consistent clients. So the property developer that we work with that we do about six or seven, eight properties a year, you know, we know already right up to January 2023 when we're fitting their show homes. So around that, we've then got to fit in our domestic work and our and the, the hotel project that we're doing. That's going to be a two-year build. So you've got to plan so that every single client gets the level of service that you're expecting them to have. And as you say, you're only as good as your last job and you're also only as good as your weakest member of staff. So you can have hundreds of staff working for you, but unless they're all meeting the standard that you want to achieve yourself, actually it reflects on you as the business owner. So that's one another reason why we've been very conscious to, to grow naturally and organically and also to be able to give our time, all of our time, you know, to our staff. Every week we have a work in progress meeting so they get a chance to, we talk about any problems that might be going on, how we can rectify it, how it's going to affect the client. And so you're preempting things before it possibly would happen to ensure that the end result is as professional and, and seamless as it can be. And, and do you have any, are there any other strategies that you employ to retain staff and keep everyone kind of happy and productive, Rose? I think getting them out of the office um, and getting them onto site is really rewarding. Um, I think it's obviously very important to get the groundwork done and all the, the technical aspects at the computer, but I think when they learn a lot and they grow is on site, and also when they feel 
um, yeah, that they get most job satisfaction because they can see this conceptual um, piece actually coming into reality. I think it's really important as well to give them the opportunity to continue their own education. So um, one of our members of staff at the moment, he, uh, um, Neil does all of the sort of CAD work and he's a technical designer, but he's really interested in lighting design. So he's looking to do a lighting course absolutely encouraged and will be funded by Rendell and Wright and Rachel is um, you know she's been doing some other sort of extracurriculum things that she's interested in and we'll, we're happy to fund and invest in them because in, in time that will make them better designers it means that they know that we're investing in their future and I think they respect it and they appreciate it and, and want to you know continue on that path really. How, Rose, do you balance your time between running and growing the business and the creative work that you obviously got into design for? Yeah, balance is the word, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's always tipping backwards and forwards, I think. Um, and yeah, I, it, it definitely got to a point where I felt like I was spending a lot of time running the business and not giving myself enough space to, yeah, to, to vision and be, be that creative person that is the whole reason I started in the first place. And I think recently that's something I've been really paying attention to. Um, switching the computer off um, in the evenings or actually blocking out at parts of my calendar to be like, this is my creative time. Um, because I recognise that if I don't value that, then the studio you know, will, will lose its most valuable assets. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's your vision. Um, so yeah, but e equally you can't abandon the business. So many times I've, I've put aside time for that and then realised, oh goodness, this client needs help with this or the team member needs that. Things always crop up. So I think you have to just be expecting the unexpected um, and yeah, shift things around. What are your strategies for dealing with that, Lindsay? Well, I think the two go hand in hand, really. I'm, I'm very lucky that Helen runs most of the sort of office side of things. So all of the main business element is taken care of by her, leaving me to then manage the sites and the creative element of it. I do spend an awful lot of time on building sites, but I do find it fascinating. And actually there's an engineering problem solving design side in being there as well. So it might not be, you know, doing lovely sort of mood boards and looking at beautiful things, but actually it's so important inherently to our design. We do a lot of sort of architectural design and um, that's the sort of core of the business really. Creative problem solving. Well, exactly. It's and it's, skill. It is, it's engineering and I find it fascinating, but it does dominate your mind, you know, when every, I'll be sitting in the evening not really watching television because all I'm thinking is how am I going to solve the problem with the plumbing in da, 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 da. all of the time when I'm you know you're driving around you're picking up the children you're doing this you might not be at work but mm. these problem solving issues are ticking away in your mind all the time and I think that's that's the sort of the problem is that the right word I don't know it's the the, the inherent thing with with design and um sort of creative industries is it's not something you switch off from it is there with you all the time which is why I think designers give so much of themselves because you can't just pick it up and leave it and you're both growing your businesses organically financial management is obviously a big issue as you're growing a company have you ever been tempted to go to the bank or get outside investment in to help fund expansion growth new offices I don't know luckily when we set up Rendell and Wright we had two huge projects which enabled us to launch Rendell and Wright and sort of set sail quite happily without having to borrow anything. So in 16 years we've never been in a situation that we've needed to have 
any external help. We've had always had good cash flow and continue to do so. So long, long way at last. Yeah, indeed, same. I, I haven't sort of taken any outside investments. It's just, um, yeah, I'm lucky enough to have the projects come in and to grow in accordance with that. Um, and yeah, I, th I feel confident that's the way we will continue. I can see the benefit of it, of course, if you want to expand massively and quickly. Um, but yeah, for now, it's very organic. I think you're creating something that could become quite stressful, though. If you're a small independent person working for yourself or a very small business, you know, you've got to then maintain that level of work to enable to pay off your debtors and that wouldn't sit comfortably with me. Um, I prefer feeling like I'm in control of it, not that somebody's controlling me because as soon as you owe somebody something, they're in control of you. How do you guys go about um, monitoring and controlling project expenditure in terms of the staff resourcing but also just kind of keeping an eye on making sure that everything is invoiced correctly and invoices are going up properly and all that kind of stuff. Is there a, do you personally get involved in any form of financial control or is that all passed across to somebody else? Well, I price all the design fees because I'm doing it so I have a better idea of um, the time taken. So you write the fee proposals? I write the fee proposals. Is that true for you too, Rose? Yes, indeed, yeah. I think I look back um, over what's occurred before. I can see um, through timesheets, for example, that the team are filling in how long something has taken, um, you know, looking at the FF&E, the management of that. So it's, um, it, it has to sort of, it, it ticks over, but you constantly have to reassess. Um, and I think working with the accountant over time and looking at that, um, yeah, you, you, you always have to see um, where something has lagged and where you've been particularly efficient and then respond accordingly. Yeah, so you adjust next time around. And do you do time, do your guys do timesheets as well? We do timesheets and all of our, all of our appointments and our time spent is diarised um, and we all have access to that diary. Um, and I do the fee proposals. Helen, we use Estimac to um, write all of our estimates for our clients and that Helen uses that as for the ordering and processing and then invoicing and it will flag the program can flag up anything that hasn't been caught, been caught. Um, so we and the way we sort of run it we have all of our design fees are staged so before we've done any work we have 50% upfront payment from our clients before any FF&E is done we get 50% upfront from our clients so it's all of our invoicing is done monthly um, and Helen does that so she's she's very good nothing ever sort of slips through the net we also have a bookkeeper that comes in once a month just to sort of check over everything um, and we there I think if you've got systems in place things shouldn't go wrong and it's setting up those systems to ensure that you're running a professional business which then enable you to have the time to do your creativity but getting those systems in place just stop things from sliding. So when you're setting up really it's it's taking the time to get those those systems and processes up and running so that you as you said you're then free to go out and create and I suppose if you've it's so easy, you can see that with young designers that they sort of jump in both feet straight into the deep end, having a wonderful time, being madly creative, and then suddenly look up six months later and kind of gone, where did the money go? Exactly. Um, and and so, it's, yes. it's being realistic about the time that things take. I think a lot of designers, you know, you see it on the student challenges, you have an awful long time to create something. And actually, in reality, you don't have an awful <laughs> long time to create something. But things do often take longer than you anticipate it's going to take. So I think it's being realistic and honest about the time and, and logging your hours, at least for the first few years that you run your business, enables you to go back over it, like Rose says, and actually think, well, actually, this to design a kitchen takes this long. And 
you'd be surprised that to design a little country kitchen takes as long as to design a, a huge manor house kitchen because the same elements go into the design, the same surface finishes go in. You've got you know, the electrics, the plumbing, the appliances, the floor finishes, the worktops. And it doesn't matter if it's a big room or a small room, it's the same design time in a lot of scenarios that would go into one or the other. So being realistic about that is very important. And I think we approach the business in the same way we approached our actual design ethos, that you can make something look beautiful, but unless it fundamentally works like a piece of engineering, it's not a good design. If you can make something work and then make it look beautiful, you've got a successful design. And it's the same with the business. The business has to work alongside the creative side. Rose, what do you think has changed most from when you were a sole practitioner to these white walls as it is now? I think it's essentially becoming a bit of a many-armed beast, you know, I think it's um, for myself when I started off, like I say, I was a kind of, I can do everything, yes person, um, and I think it then comes to the point when you re recognise actually bring people on board who are better at doing certain things than you, like the technical side, I mean, I taught myself CAD, um, I fumble my way through it, I can do it, but I'm slow, you know, and I, I'm much better off being that person with um, a pencil and a sketch pad and creating that and giving it to a technical person. So I think, therefore, it becomes this wonderful extension of yourself um, and, you know, team members who are amazing at ff &E, they just love to shop. <laughs> and, you know, you say, well, this is the aesthetic and, and they spend enough time with you and they can gauge what you will and will not like. Um, and then they go off and, and source that for you. And so I, I think it, it's quite exciting from that perspective because it just kind of grows beyond you. Um, and then you, you have to sort of be there and make sure that it remains cohesive. Obviously, then you, you have to be prepared to let it go. You have to be allowed, you have to be prepared to bring in those people with mm. those skills that are beyond what you actually can do. Mm. And I think, again, some designers perhaps find it difficult to, to not do everything themselves. Oh, absolutely. No, I found it incredibly hard. Um, to delegate and, and, and still do, like I still am very, very involved, possibly too involved, um, I'm on the WhatsApp the whole time, um, but I just can't help it because it, it really is important, every single detail down from you know the forks on the tables all the way up to the finishes on the building, like uh, I just care about it all, so I can't really fully let go, but you do have to trust to a degree, otherwise you'll never, you'll never move forward. And I think also one of the challenges is you get to a certain size how do you keep feeding the, the mm -hmm, beast? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and and yeah. you must be a chief salesperson as well as being a good creative within the company and everything else. So Keeping to the ethos of what do you want to create. So I think if you take on every single project that comes your way, then I think you possibly could get in a bit of a mess. And I think I've been very careful to vet them. I ha you know, even during COVID, I turned down a project or two because it didn't feel right. Um, they weren't really aligned to what we wanted to create. And I think, therefore, you end up working on projects in depth, in a bespoke nature, on a personal level with your clients. And I find that very satisfying. Um, and you get to pick and choose rather than over-accelerating forward. Um, and then I, th I think that's, for me, that feels right. What about brand, Rendell and Wright? How does that, uh, how do you promote that? Well, we don't really, which is an odd thing to say. When we first set up, we um, had a stand in the Lifestyle Pavilion at the Suffolk Show. We were sort of, you know, what do you do? Do you advertise in magazines? Do you, you know, Instagram things? It didn't really exist. In, you know, social media wasn't a thing when we set up um, in the same way. So we had our website, but we sort of went on a 
personal crusade, I guess. We thought we want to be seen by people that are potential clients. So we had our stand there for six years. We did it year on year. And we picked up some fabulous clients that met us, looked at our portfolios. We had a room set and they have gone on to be clients that are still with us 16 sort of years later. Um, we again went to see architects in the area and sort of explained what we did and the services that we could offer to support the work that they were doing and from that we started solely picking up clients and they recommended us and we haven't really ever advertised as such it's all been word of mouth is it the same for you rose very much so yes absolutely i think doing working in hospitality as well you uh, you pick up clients and when they've visited the space that you've, you've created, so restaurants are particularly good for that, or visited the hotel, um, and, and then they come and they seek you out. Um, equally, I think working with a couple of clients who are very private, um, you know, a lot of the work we do, we can't really reveal that process, so then it becomes a little bit difficult. You can't, you can't showcase those spaces or even the process or sometimes the location or anything to do with who they are. Um, so it then tends to come from referrals. Um, so yeah, I think in a similar vein, um, it's, it's, it's just come to us um, and it's so far it's worked. But both of you present a very strong face of the practice. You know, you are that glamorous designer character that everybody wants to be. How important do you think it is, Lindsay, to, 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 you know, to maintain your personal profile? I mean, obviously, you're current British Institute of Interior Design president, and that's a big deal. But in other ways? I think it gives clarity and confidence to the client. If they can see that you've got a presence, they can see that you have written for magazines or you've won awards or that your work is recognised by your industry, I think it gives them the confidence that they are choosing somebody to design their property that knows what they're doing, is going to behave in a professional way and also that you know, you're not going to run off into the night with millions of pounds that they may have given you to, entrusted with you to spend. So it just gives them the confidence that you are going to deliver what you've said you're going to deliver. And I think being a member of the BIID, and as you say, the president this year, that also has given clients confidence that they are employing somebody that knows their game and is professional and is going to you know, handle their property well and alleviate them from the stress that they might otherwise have. And Rose, because your, your profile, obviously, you're, you're very high profile. You're very well known as the designer of some extraordinary projects. Well, that's quite interesting because I never placed myself in that position, I don't think. I mean, when I, previous to being an interior designer or having that studio, I was very much the backstage kind of person, like dressed fully in black you know, on the TV set, dangling things in front of the camera. Um, I, my intention was always to be, to, was always to create a beautiful space for people to enjoy and not place myself at the centre. But equally, as Lindsay said, people, people want to know who you are. I think that's a really key thing. And, and because you are that, that drive, that vision, that reason, that purpose. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm quite, quite happy. I love talking about what I do. I love to talk about what I do. I could talk for hours. I won't shut up. So, um, you know, in that sense, then I'm very happy to, to communicate. Um, and I think the conversations around that are really important for people to understand, you know, what you can do for them. And how important is it for you nurturing good relationships with existing clients and encouraging referrals? Um, absolutely. I mean, I work 
very close with clients and you know if you particularly if you're doing their homes I mean we work on hospitality and residential and I think you you, you learn a lot and you get very up close and personal with a client in order to make sure that what you're creating is perfect for them um, and so yeah it goes without saying that you need to re you know retain those relationships um, and look after your clients because um, you never know who um, who will come next from that but most of the time it, it is from referrals and so it just proves that if you provide a good service um, that will come back to you. Lindsay, what are the biggest challenges you've faced in growing your business, would you say? Time, probably, is actually it takes an awful lot of time um, and to grow a business whilst you're working in it as well as living your own life, it, it, everything takes time. And I think just being, just being passionate about what you do and enjoying what you do, naturally it will just keep going. But I think the most difficult bit was definitely that first year three young babies flying all over the place and it's something I'd never want mm. to repeat again. Just it certainly kids. was a huge learning <laughs> Character curve. building. Character building stuff, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, dare I say the COVID word, but, you know, we were very, very young, like sort of two years old and, and you know, on a big trajectory and then suddenly the world stopped. Um, and it was like, okay, I've anticipated a lot of things, but I did not anticipate that. And I think that's a, that's a universal, I think, for all, um, you know, young businesses that, yeah, you're just not prepared, so you had to adapt. Um, so yeah, we adapted, um, and I think it's it's shifted our trajectory a little bit. Perhaps moving a little bit more into balancing residential and doing more product design things alongside hospitality means that you know we diversified a little bit faster. Um, so ultimately, it was you know it was a good thing. Um, but yeah, that that definitely hit hit us out of nowhere. I think. <laughs> Lindsay, what is the one piece of advice that you would give to ambitious sole practitioners or partnerships? looking to expand? Tread carefully, I'd say. Um, ensure that you're expanding for the right reasons, not because you feel like you ought to. Um, I think it's really important that you don't compare yourself to other designers and think, oh, they've done this, therefore I should be doing that. I think you have to be true to yourself, you have to be true to your skill set and your type of work as well. And being honest in design, having clarity in design and being you know, true to yourself, I think will inevitably you'll have a successful business. Don't grow it too fast, grow it in a way that feels comfortable. And Rose? I think integrity, um, I think growth for growth's sake is not right. Um, you know, sit down, know what it is you want to create, who you are, um, what it is you're bringing to the table, and then you'll very quickly recognise if somebody comes to you that's not right. Um, yeah, go with your guts and um, do what you care about, love what you do, and choose those projects that are aligned to that. This is the part of the show where we like to ask or invite our special guests to share a particular story, um, an amusing anecdote, or something really special that's happened to them in the course of their careers. Lindsay, do you want to kick this one off? Well, I just would like to say how it's lovely to work with families time and time again. And actually, as a designer, you're working so closely with people in their personal spaces that you almost become part of the family. And there are quite a few families that we've now worked repeatedly with over the last 16 years. And children's bedrooms who we've designed when they were sort of 12 or 10 years old, we're now doing their first homes with their partners and their first children's bedrooms and things. And it's, it's wonderful to be involved with people and over that long period of time. So you can grow your business as other people are growing up. Exactly, it's lovely. And 
they understand me and I understand them and they'll, you know, they'll call and say, we've got another property for you to do or we've got, you know, their son's bought his first house and can you work with them? And you know intrinsically what they're looking for. So it's a lovely marriage of creativity and service and, and meeting families' needs. Thank you, Lindsay and Rose, for sharing your wonderful experiences and advice with us today. Yes, very entertaining and lots of insight, so thank you both very much. Thank you also to our podcast partners, Parkside Architectural Tiles, for hosting us here today. You can find out more about Parkside at parkside.co.uk. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood production.